Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. In the studio with me today is Ben Vickery, the founding partner of Vickery Hyatt, a, a sports design firm out of London, and also Charlie Janigan, one of the development partners of SHP Design out of Cincinnati, Ohio. We're going to be talking about resilient security and new constructs around design in a post-COVID world. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Well, Ben and Charlie, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. We're so happy to have you in our studio today. Delighted to be here. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Excited to be here to share some, some insight. Well, I think the, the majority of our time here together, as you know, we're, we're operating under a theme called resilient security. And it's a funny two words to bring together because people are like, what? Resilient and security? Why do those go together? Of course, we've watched over the last few years coming through a pandemic, and now we hope that we're on the backside of that. It has changed our entire construct, our, our consciousness of how we think about security. We think about security certainly at the physical level, but also at the emotional level now, probably more than ever, the, the demands for mental health coming out of the deep isolation that we were in. And so the two different public venues that two of your firms work within is really interesting to us because whether it's a an elementary school in the Midwest with a, a couple of hundred kids coming and going or whether it is an international stadium with thousands of people blowing in and out of the, the doorways, the gateways, we have a common problem and a common challenge and a common opportunity. And it is about creating places and spaces where gatherings and large gatherings of humans come together and feel safe. They feel safe on the multiple dimensions of being human. And design is central to all of that. It's not like an after the fact. It is the fact when it comes to creating resilient security. Now, you'll note that I talked about safe places before, but the other dynamic that we're interested in in this series that we're doing has to do with resilience. That is, that it is sustainable. It has the ability to recover from a setback and flourish forward. It is fit. The building is fit, the environment is fit, the context that you've built is fit to recover if it has a setback. That's the idea of resilience. So I wanted to tee up this, this kind of framework for the three of us to be here today on This Is Design Intelligence to just to hear some of your thoughts about how, how do you approach design in a post-COVID world with these themes in mind? Charlie, could I ask you to kick us off and tell us what's, what's going on in, in that head of yours about this topic? So design for security in the post-COVID world is, is uh, top of mind for every client. When we start a project, uh, clients cannot wait to start uh, really getting into the nuts and bolts of the features and, and things that might be incorporated into a new building. We tend to take it a, a little bit slow because we, we have a lot of passive and active things that we'll incorporate. So some of the passive measures that we might have is just distance off of curbs from entries, 
to give proper sight lines to, to, to watch visitors deeper into a building. We, we will actually look at sight lines of, uh, from, from windows through a corridor and to see how can you see in and what, what can't be seen. And so there are some um, passive measures that we'll incorporate that become very important for an owner before we really get into the nuts and bolts and looking at, at, at containment and sheltering and, and some of those, you know, really critical first responder type topics. So we also, one of the things we continually do is, is maintain a white paper that we um, have developed with, with experts in the field. And we continually, unfortunately, update it after every incident. And so we look at certain situations and, and try to identify what was the cause and, and then use that as a discussion point when we're with our clients. So that's, that's an intro kind of, of how, we, how we begin things. And then from there, we start to add on the actual layers of security and, and start to get into the nuts and bolts. Ben? Well, I would say that in sports buildings, safety and security is a balance. And that's a balance between allowing people to enjoy themselves and controlling them, uh, you know, Obviously, you come to a sporting event to have fun. And often having fun means getting a little bit out of control and jumping up and down and all sorts. But on the extreme end, that can be dangerous. Now, the the threats in a, a stadium are many, but mostly they come from the people who are there one way or another. And you know that there have been all sorts of nasty events over the years, tragedies, no less, uh, where people have died. And uh, in fact, more minor incidents. You may know that recently at the um, European Championship final at Wembley, they had an incident whereby a whole load of fans broke into the stadium without tickets. They rushed the gates, got in without tickets. And it was sort of fueled by drugs and alcohol. But also that sort of event is the borders between fun and dangerous activity. And you can end up with sporting venues actually being some of the most controlling environments that you can ever enter. You you know that you when you go to a sports venue, you buy a ticket, it allows you to go to one seat, it allows you to go to a small part of the building, not to other parts. And when you're in your seat, you're asked to sit down I'm talking about in the most controlled sports, and that's probably we're talking here about European soccer, where there's the most has been the most number of incidents over the years, and therefore it's the most controlled environment. But there's probably stuff you don't know about with sports buildings. So there are venues where they have facial recognition, they have activity recognition. I don't know whether you know about this software that can identify people who are just behaving oddly. The, you know, the software through cameras everywhere is watching people's behavior and analyzing it. The software can see people behaving oddly. So along with lots of police observance and control throughout the building. And, you know, European sports venue, in European soccer venue, you can really be very controlled. And if you move out of normal activity, you get stopped and chucked out. And that has to be done. You know, does that ruin the fun of people are there? I suspect not really. Do people object? I think people would object a lot more if they knew the degrees of software and analysis and how much your name was being passed around. <laughs> Every time you go to a sports venue, you're 
name is recorded and if you behave badly, it gets on a record and all of that sort of stuff. So as I say, we're talking about resilient security. Yes, there's security, but it comes at a price. Not all sports are like this, obviously. Um, You know, horse racing is much more relaxed. Um, Other sports, athletics can be much more relaxed, not the Olympics. Olympics is very, very controlled. Um, but I suppose it must be the same in the world of education, that it's a balance, isn't it? You know, how far yeah. do you want to go down the road of control? Correct. <clears throat> when do people start objecting to that? Yeah, you, you hit on a great point on the education environments, and balance is the word. You know, we we are trying to create environments that kids wake up and want to hop out of bed and, and, and enter into these environments to learn. They're excited. They're energized. And that balance is it has to be open and, and somewhat transparent, but it also needs to be secured and, and locked down in the event of, of a situation. We, we do not have many schools that have, uh, you know, in your face uh, security features, metal detectors, um, gates. You know, it's, it's, it's an environment first that is an exciting environment. 99.9% of the time or 100% of most facilities is happy, enjoyable, exciting, uh, lively environment where children go to learn or perform or play. And then, then that 0.1% or 0% of some facilities, it has to be protected and uh, contained. It is the, an incredible amount of balance. Um, and we've heard and we've there's now research that talks about children reacting to some of the, the negative um, aspects of harder security facilities, uh, facilities with police walking around um, who are carrying weapons or, or things to that nature. It's intimidating, especially for younger children. And so balance is that key word. We want them to be fun and exciting, but yet at the same time, they need to be able to um, protect when necessary. So Charlie, when you, you think about a school environment, the school boards, the administration, the faculty, all of these are voices, stakeholders inside of the design of a building or the redesign of, of some of these schools. What is the, the level of interaction that you have with these folks in making design decisions towards this resilient security? You know, a lot of the projects that we work on are public funded, and when they are public funded, uh, you tend to have a broad stakeholder input. And some folks may be at at a very small level and be focused on a singular thing. Some folks may be very broad and and have an extensive experience in in working in these environments. So that's a challenge because you, you have some folks who might want these facilities to be hardened beyond what what the educators want and so again that balance that that's the right that's the phrase of the day of, of, of finding that happy medium that satisfies those who think a threat might happen and satisfying the educators who are tasked with improving children's lives so the, can this... i ask do you in schools have um cctv i guess you do that but mm-hmm. do you have facial recognition <clears throat> linked to the ccv and do you have this yeah, facial recognition that I've talked about. All that yeah, sort of facial recognition is not a uh, technology that's being incorporated. We we are using uh, very extensive cameras, 4K, with that maintains files for weeks and weeks. If, if we need to go back, you know that is some of the active measures that are in place that are are phenomenal. Uh, the ability to record uh, and have multiple weeks of footage. There is motion sensitivity. There's there's motion sensitivity for lights and cameras. Uh, so for on security, as far as uh, break-ins, 
and maybe people were entering in the facilities when it's dark out. That technology has increased and it's improved dramatically, but facial recognition isn't something that, that I have seen yet. I'm aware of it, um, and I'm sure other markets that, that have a greater demand are using it, but it, it will migrate to schools when it becomes readily available. I think as threats grow and society continues to, in some places, celebrate violence, it makes the job of public gathering design and convening more and more challenging to stay ahead of these things. And for utter security, you have, there's a trade-off. You're going to have to give up some liberties you know, at the end of the day. And that's just what it is. Of course, in a sports venue, you're paying to get into a place, hopefully primarily to watch the match or watch the game. Not You don't want to overpay to sit in a seat to drink beer all day. You want to go to watch something fun and wonderful and, and, and cheer for your team. In a school facility, you know, it's a different, it's a different exchange that's occurring there. But Let's let's shift over and talk about instead of the 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 physical threat of an attack or something awful occurring, we had another villain in the form of an an invisible virus that changed how we thought about air and light and distance and proximity and all so many things were introduced into our consciousness. Now that we're supposedly past this period and we're all inoculated and feeling good about ourselves, how then has that, though, changed permanently how we think about light and air and proximity and distance separation? I would say that um, certainly in the UK, we've all gone away from our COVID restrictions. So we are all now allowed to assemble together indoors and outdoors, um, without masks on, all of that. Sometimes in public transport, you see people with masks on, but the big era of restrictions has ended. But I don't think we can go through an experience like that, come out the other side and not be affected. Certainly, I know that thinking about ventilation in particular has changed, and spaces that are enclosed and badly ventilated are not a good idea now. But other than that, I don't really think that there's, I see a permanent effect at the moment. People are nervous still sometimes, um, and certainly certain groups of people. But football grounds are back to the top as they were, and with folk jumping up and down and shouting again. So, yeah, I think on our side, it's, I'm not sure what sort of a long term effect it'll be. I would say um, Americans are are very accustomed or more comfortable in temperature threshold. Uh, historically, as a designer, Americans are, are comfortable in about 65 to 75 degrees. And being forced to go outside, dining outside potentially, uh, learning outside, I think we've learned to put your coats on and, and be comfortable in a little bit colder weather or warmer weather because you're outside and you know you're breathing fresh air. And so I've actually have a couple of projects that are under construction right now. And I call them my COVID projects because we started designing them January of 21. And one of them has an incredibly large courtyard, uh, large enough where you could fit 400, 500 people in this courtyard. And there's classrooms surrounding it. And we've programmed this courtyard to have uh, multiple uses. You could dine out there. It's adjacent to art rooms or you could create art out there. It's adjacent to science rooms where science curriculum could occur. 
we actually put a stage platform out there where performances can occur in the evenings. And this community, uh, when we started designing it, was dying for outdoor space. And it was a reflection of a world where we knew if we could go outside, you could you could live uh, spread out and you could, you could breathe easier potentially without masks. And so um, I think this client has a greater appreciation for courtyards and I don't want them to forget why they, why they wanted it and hopefully that they can continue to use it. And it's giving them an additional programmatic space. And if we were not in the pandemic, I don't know if we would have had that feature within the design. So it's a direct reflection. Well, um, learning and doing activities outdoors for the children could be great, couldn't it? Yeah. Really. Yeah. And this, this is a high school. Uh, and, and, um, and, and I have another job right now that we've started designing uh, mid-22. Again, has another courtyard feature. It's also reflective of having larger buildings and, and being able to uh, provide daylight. Uh, I also have a lot of other clients that can speak to HVAC better than, than they ever could before because of just the awareness. I have some projects right now that are using the United States federal funds to create or install bipolar ionization. Mm-hmm. Bipolar ionization is a is a feature that is added within your mechanical systems that basically creates uh, charged particles and it will help uh, attract to airborne viruses or germs. So if someone coughs, these charged particles will hit it and it, it, it makes them basically fall to the ground. And I have clients who Three years ago, wouldn't speak at all about HVAC filtration and air quality, but now they, they want to know more about what can they do and what can they add because it's a feature that, that they know they can tell their community or constituents, we have this, it is a safe place, come in here and be a part of what we're, we're, we're trying to do. I certainly know that um, in London, there are some people who now don't want to go on public transport. So London transport is used less than it was pre-COVID. And I don't know what it's like in Cincinnati or Atlanta, but the um, office buildings in the centre of the city here are, well, I was told they were 60% occupied now. Well, you know, everyone's working from home much of the time. They probably are in the States. But I was also told that that 60% figure was incorrect and it was near 30%. We're seeing the same thing. A lot of vacancies in, in, in corporate environments. And in the Midwest, we're seeing a lot of people work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in an office. Yeah. Monday, and it's Monday, partly Friday. Because yeah. they've got used to it, isn't it? But it's partly yeah. also because of COVID, and yeah. people still don't want to be out there mixing, particularly on, well, in London, the tube system is very mm-hmm. packed in very close with each other. So people don't like that. You know, Ben, I just got home from London. I was there all last week, and it, it was an unconscious dynamic, but I, I avoided all public transport and I I just, you know, it was a cold week there last week. It dropped to 26 degrees Fahrenheit and 10 degrees Fahrenheit wind chill. It was cold. It was cold, but I just bundled up and walked everywhere. I did, I got all my steps in. I'll tell you that. I did a few 20,000 day steppers, you know, it was a interesting thing. And and I was thinking I would to go down in the tube. And I just walked right by and kept walking. And uh, I, I was, uh, I wonder if that's changed that way for me forever. To tell you the truth, I don't want to well, be. I think you're not alone in in walking around London a lot more. Yeah, I, I certainly don't want to be operating out of fear all the time, and we don't want to send that message to our children and our sports fans and everyone else in the world that we want to operate out of fear. It's not that, but I will tell you that I. It is a present concern, even after this period has gone by. Now, I'm curious if you're aware at all in the UK about 
the level of construction in the primary and secondary school markets. And I say that because in the U.S., it exploded coming out of this. It's been unbelievable the amount of schoolwork that has generated of redesign or new design, new buildings uh, going on across the United States. It's It was a phenomenon we did not expect to operate at this level. But I don't believe it's operating at that same dynamic in the UK to the same volume. Because schools are primarily public in the UK, financed by the state. And ah. the state does not have a lot of money at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, most, most of our schools or public schools are here, but they're being funded by local bonds and and uh, not looking to the to parliament. They're looking to the local yokels to, to do it and getting some matching funds, wouldn't you say, Charlie? Well, yeah, and I think it's a reflection of of majority of the United States went on a remote school process. And so this remote learning experiment was proven to, to not work very well. There was loss of learning, kids' ability to just pay attention in their home. It was just proven to not work. I've been designing schools for 23 years, and folks would always say, oh, as a school designer, you you better be ready for online education. It's, it's going to take you down. You guys won't be designing buildings when there's online education. And um, 2020 served as a wonderful beta test for us to say, hey, it's, it's not going to work. People need to learn from each other. People want to be together. And I think so there was a greater support throughout the nation and communities to say, hey, we have wonderful facilities. Uh, we need to improve them. Our kids do better here. Let's, uh, let's invest in them. And so that's why we have seen this explosion of design work in the public K-12 world. Yes, I have to say that I do a bit of teaching myself, not at that level, but at uh, postgraduate and graduate level. And there, even there, teaching online was a horrible experience, both mm-hmm. for me and the students. So I wouldn't, wouldn't like to repeat that. Yeah. So go- going into the future, as we look at this trajectory of, of where the world is today, and all the many and un- honestly wonderful lessons we learned coming through this difficult last 30 months, how will that change, or maybe not, change your approach to design projects into the future from pre-COVID to this new reality that we're living in? So let me let me start with you, Ben, and then yeah. I'll have Charlie bring us through. Well, there's one point I'd like to make about that, which is that during the pandemic, people couldn't assemble in sports buildings. They couldn't go to live events and they had to watch it all on the television. And sport is not the same watched on the television. There is a tendency slightly for sport to move to the television. Um, You know, there has been for some years that attendance at major events has, has dropped off a bit. But during the pandemic, people definitely wanted to get back together in a sports building watching live events. And that's not going to change because the dynamic, the excitement, all of those things of being together with a crowd, having fun, shouting for your team, all of those things, they they are the same and people want to do them still. So you say, what will change coming out of a pandemic? I would say that the same long-term changes that were happening are still happening mm. in terms of people wanting better quality of service at a sports venue they to some degree fewer people want to come but that's not wholly the same and there's a a, we're getting a mixture now between online and live events you know people going to a sports ground and then watching the match on their phone 
whilst they're watching the live match, all this sort of stuff. But how much is that related to COVID? I'm not sure. I think that's the long-term trends that were happening anyway. Charlie? Just to echo Ben a little bit, again, pe- people wanted to get back together. Uh, that separation that was created of this remote learning, I think we realized uh, that, that students learn from their peers. They learn from the interactions in the cafeteria. It's not 100% digital on a screen all the time. So, you know, we, we feel that there's, there's a lot of things about opportunities to go outside for outdoor learning, for outdoor play, to get fresh air. I think within a building, uh, there's just a heightened awareness of of fresh air, air changes, filtration, bipolar ionization, things that we can do to create the healthiest environment. And last and not least, is just flexibility within learning environments. Uh, flexibility is a key of just being able to adapt, move the furniture around, potentially open up walls to create more room to spread out. And so uh, I think flexible learning is going to continue. And then last and certainly not least is we've, we've tipped our toes on just the, the technology and uh, the, the kind of the active measures that can be incorporated um, to make sure these spaces are secure. Facial recognition will be coming. You know, app-based technology for principals and to communicate to all the staff is there, but it's going to continue to come along. So uh, within my world, it's holding in all those components together and trying to, again, uh, find that balance that that appeases the stakeholders and also creates these exciting environments for kids to to wake up and go learn too. It's an exciting and brave new world. Ben Vickery and Charlie Janigan, thanks for joining me today on This is Design Intelligence. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.